Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. This is an Oh, welcome, welcome back to the Mouth of Manliness. And um, I'm really excited today because I've got Danny McNamara from Embrace on the podcast. Um, <laughs> welcome, Danny. Thanks for coming. Thanks My for pleasure. Coming. Uh, I so first things first. Like I have to admit, I'm a massive Embrace fan. Um, like when I was your first album to me. Um, like I still can't listen to it at times without kind of welling up. It, it really touches me. But it uh, it was kind of came out in a period when like my life was like really, really shitty. And it just spoke to me. It just spoke to me so much um, that it's never really left me. Um, I, I still constantly go back to the first album. Um, but like, obviously, you know, all the others are great as well. But the first album is like pretty definitive to me but um wow. oh yeah oh, fuck it. i love it i tell you what i only like retread is one of my favorite songs of all time i absolutely adore retread that's the first song i ever wrote that is it yeah no way <laughs> yeah i mean we wrote wrote like loads of other sort of ideas and stuff but that was the first one where i thought right yeah that's a proper song I tell you, the, li- the line, um, if you had a wing, you'd be the last to know you could fly, uh, yeah. is one of my favourite lyrics. Because uh, it kind of, it's got that, um, like the Beatles one, uh, um, it reminds me of, um, you know when, um, oh, strength to your elbow, something like that, I can't remember it. Right. But it reminds me of something like that, I just love it, I fucking love it. But we've met before. Many, many, many years ago, um, you guys were just not long kind of started touring and you played in Essex, uh, uh, the YMCA, uh, with, it was used and then AC Acoustics were on first. Right, wow. It was like, yeah, a while ago. Yeah, tiny place. Um, and then afterwards, like I kind of muscled my way back uh, into the backstage room and asked if I could roll a joint. And you were very courteous 
as in the way that I probably was drunk. <laughs> we were all very lovely and just kind of let us get on with it. But yeah, some time ago. I think um, when you guys were like just starting out, uh, or not starting out, you know like when you came to London and you were playing? Yeah. Um, I was in a band at the same time. We were basically doing quite similar stuff. But I, like yours was just so much more epic and you know emotional than ours. But we had like a keyboard player with key uh, with strings and that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We must have been kind of playing around the same times. And then like, and then one day uh, I was walk. Me and my mate Stuart, uh, we both like really liked your band. And then um, I'd recorded my weakness is none of your business because it was on like Radio One or something. And we were walking home from the pub and we both had a headphone in each and it was the first time we'd heard the song and we were both like, fuck it. We ain't going to do that, are we? Well, we originally did that um, as a B-side for Very Good Good People and um, we recorded it in the morning because we needed the B-side. It wasn't really like one of the main songs. Um, It was just a couple of bits, like I had a verse... And I sort of had a chorus. It didn't have any words or anything. It sort of had a melody. And it was going to be like someone was going to sing the first bit and then someone else was going to sing the second bit. Yeah. So, like, you know, it goes, my weakness. And then someone, someone else would go, da 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 And then someone else would go, da 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 You know, so it's like a counterpoint thing. And then I had the idea of, like, I'll sing the first line and then we'll get trumpets to do the second line. So I'll go, my weakness. And then then that didn't work. And then I was like, right, well, I'm going to have to write some words then. And um, there's a Michelle Gale song called My Sweetness is Your Weakness or something. My Weakness is Your Sweetness or something. And that's where I got the, the hook my weakness is none of your business. Um, and then it really grew and, and sort of about midday, we'd, we'd recorded it. It was coming out of the speakers sounding really big. And we uh, sent it down to the record company. And then the record company immediately rang me up and said, you can't put this out as a B-side, it's too good. And I just said, wow, we've got loads. Just just stick it on there, we've got loads. And, and so they did. But, um, yeah, it's good. Like, quite a lot of the songs that we sort of had as either EP tracks or B-sides ended up being as good as the A-sides. And... Oh, yeah. Those are the early EPs are really good. I mean, there's the other one that I really like. is uh, Butter Wouldn't Melt. Like, you know, yeah. Like, that's difficult vocal. That's inspired by... Um... Oh, there's a Neil Young song. Philadelphia. Really? Yeah, Philadelphia, Neil Young. I remember hearing that um, and just thinking, right, I want to sing one like that. And uh, and, and then, yeah, I wrote that. That took about 10 minutes as well. Um, stuff always does that, doesn't it? Because it's kind of like... <laughs> well, yeah, it kind of comes and yeah. goes. Sometimes it takes 10 minutes, sometimes it takes 10 years. It's yeah. uh, They come when they want. I think one of the things that I really liked about you and Embrace really was that um, you just weren't afraid to be like 
open and be uh, and be vulnerable because the songs are all really they're they're like these quite often these most really kind of bruised ballads type songs and um considering the times you know all right like i'm a big birth fan so you know it, there's like i like that kind of sound but <laughs> you know like at the at the time when you've got oasis when it's all about being old and then then you guys are like well really it was all, it's all sort of um it was all taken from the stone roses all attitude um you know the verve and oasis and all those Manchester bands, even the Mondays, like it's all, all, all goes back to that sort of northern kind of mystic kind of vibe. Yeah, yeah. He's gone. He's gone a bit too far with the don't wear a mask and tweeting and getting a bit. I think he's. I think he's feeling the lockdown is all the umbra. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, Noel said something as well, didn't he? And it's like. You came up to me once, uh, Ian Brown. Uh, we were at a festival, and I'd sort of said in the press that I didn't like to eat before going on stage because I was really nervous and stuff. Yeah. And I was in the canteen eating, and he came up to me and he went, I thought I read in the press that you didn't like to eat before going on stage. I said, I don't. I've just come off. He was like, oh, all right, carry on then. <laughs> all right, mum. Like he was going to have it out with me or something. <laughs> Quite sweet, really. Um, yeah, yeah, remember that. God. It was. It was all that. Um, that and we and we sort of picked up a little bit of that attitude as well. And Ian McCulloch maybe did it before the Roses. You know, it's that sort of attitude, which I I um I really like. And when when you when you're starting out, and especially if you're really young and stuff, um, you don't know what you're doing, and and I think the bravado hides a certain amount of nervousness, and um, I suppose in a way it is a lack of confidence because you're sort of overstating stuff. It's like you know, she protested. Too much, yeah, you know what I mean? like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> too much, if um, because that, that's the thing, like, quite often, like, you listen to the music and it's like really, really, you know, touchingly beautiful at times, you know, like fireworks when it's really, really low, and um, and then, yeah, and then, like, then the kind of, yeah, we're the bollocks, we can fucking win, <laughs> like, like for me, I could tell that there was, yeah. there's more, like. Basically, like you know, l listen to the music. <laughs> like, I, I, I really did feel like that, though. I mean, I still do. It's like the sort of belief that what you're doing is important. And I think when before you get signed to a record label, no one takes you seriously, so you can't even get gigs. Like we couldn't even get local promoters to put us on at, at local gigs, you know. So you had to have a certain amount of front and bravado just to knock down doors you know and then suddenly when you're on the front cover of all the press and all of a radio one and all the rest of it you don't need to knock down doors anymore but you've still got that mindset yeah. you've still got that we're fucking gonna do it you know we're gonna be amazing and all that and also as well like it really helps you focus on the job that you've got to do which is you know make some amazing music and if you sort of if you promise the whole world that you're gonna deliver an album that would be like 
the Beatles wouldn't have sounded if they'd let Brian Wilson join, which is what we said. Yeah. Then, uh, which is quite a big promise. Then you work really hard to try and deliver it, you know, and end up doing something that's maybe better than if you'd been apologising for it. Yeah, yeah. It makes things happen. You know, like, you've got yeah. to, like, someone's got to make stuff happen. And if you don't... It's a little bit cart before the horse, and it does put a lot of pressure on, um, which might not be good for your health, but I think it makes for good... It made a, it made a good album, so... So I'm still you, proud of that album. Oh yeah, yeah. And I, it's I, what I like about it also is that it's really long. So when I first got it, I had it on, uh, listened to it on tape on my Walkman when I'm riding my bike and that. Uh, so I, I tended to listen to the first half more, and then one day I was like, oh shit, there's loads more songs on here. <laughs> there's like brilliant ones at the end. So like, I just kept, kept on giving. Don't get that very often. That's I, I used to do that. I had uh, I had a, a C ninety cassette um, with Do Little by the Pixies on one side, and then the Stone Roses album on the other side. Had to sl- do a slight edit on the Stone Roses album; it was just a bit too long, so I edited some of the backwards stuff out. Uh, um, but yeah, I, I I remember decorating my house one time and just basically sticking that on and and just going like that. All day, I must have listened to each side like a hundred times. Not bad, two choices either, really. Doolittle is by far my favorite pick. Well, I think it's yeah. probably the most accessible, like Pixies record. Some of them are a bit harder to listen to. Yeah, I didn't like when they went heavy metal. No, <laughs> and I thought before Doolittle they were good, but they weren't quite as focused. Yeah, Doolittle is the one for me. It's got some power to it, and it? it's like the yeah. songs are more rounded. So yeah, it's funny enough. Like I was, um, like basically, I've been like in kind of preparation to seeing you. I've just been getting these massive emotional reactions to embrace songs again. Into <laughs> 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 and I'm like, I've got to talk to this guy and try and be normal. Um, and then I, like, I listened to something else. I think when you were like talking through the album on the anniversary, and uh, you kind of touched on points in there where you were like really struggling you know, with the weight of it all and like, and then you listen to the songs and there's like, uh, there's someone who's not necessarily having the easiest of times going on. So like, was that, I'm thinking really, like to come up with the songs, was that reflecting on your life at the time? You know, like if you were for it, did you feel like, like a lot Um, of heartbroken, aren't they? um, It's a weird one because, We'd been in a band for quite a while before we got signed. So I think I was about, I think our Richard was about 17, 18 when we started. So I must have been about 18, 19. And, uh, but we didn't get signed until I was 26. So it was eight years of like trying to get gigs and rewriting the whole set because we'd written one that we thought was good and then scrapping it all and then starting again. And, um, but during that time, so between 19 and 22, so right at the beginning of it, really, um, I had post-traumatic stress disorder. So, um, and that was just like horrendous. I mean, I, I, I have an understanding of what it feels like 
whatever anyone's been through. So, you know, um, obviously, you know, I'm, I'm nearly 50 now. You, you, you meet a lot of people who've been through a lot of different things. And I always have a language now where I can talk to someone no matter what they've been through and have empathy because of what I went through myself, you know. Um, but back then, what it did was it just it just felt like it unlocked something. So before I was ill, we'd be writing stuff and it just sounded like our influences. So there was like bands like The Bonnie Men, who I mentioned earlier, and uh, U2 and The House of Love and um, PJ Harvey, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And um, and we just sounded just like them. I mean, I just used to do pretty much an Ian McCulloch impression, really. And I can still do a pretty good Ian McCulloch impression when I want to. Yeah, I, I, I love Bonnie Men. They're great. Man. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've met I've met Ian a few times, um, and uh, he's good value. He's always really good value. I read uh, read something, and he was talking about someone really famous, and and like rather than saying oh, I met them, he says, "Oh yeah, they. Oh yeah, um, you know, like De Niro met me once. Yeah, <laughs> like, fucking brilliant. That's what I want from my rock stars. I don't want normal boy rock stars. I want yeah. swagger, you know." I had um I had this really long quote on um from we did a video called Target and I got this I got this long quote made. I was supposed to be playing like this dark angel or something, like a sort of matrix style long coat and uh, and obviously like the bunny men are really famous for wearing long coats. So I knew I was gonna be seeing him, so I took my long coat and I was like and he looked at me and what's my coat? And he goes, huh? And I was like, I thought he'd like it. It's, you know, it's like <laughs> Bonnie Men long coats. Went, mm, it's a bit 18th century done. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit long. It's not, it's not quite, it's not quite right, you know. And I was like, oh, oh well, never mind. I tried, I tried. Just not as cool as Ian McCulloch, you know what I mean? <laughs> so, so, so you, so you said. Did you have no kind of uh, symptoms of PTSD prior to that point that you said? Um, well, so what happened was um, I quite uh, sort of four or five quite uh, pivotal things happened in my life within a couple of weeks, and then I had this like near car accident where the um, big end went on my car and the and I, I was only going at like 10 miles an hour or something but the car froze and that's happened to me yeah and it and it was f- really frightening because you know I, and it was coming out of the uh, cinema car park and the cinema joins the motorway so if it had happened like even a minute later I'd have been going 80 miles an hour you know so something inside me must have done some maths and, and come up with a scary number. Yeah. Um, and so when, when I got home, I was just shivering. I was just really sort of shaking all over. Um, and I said to the, the, the girl I was seeing at the time, I was like, are you cold? And she's like, no, you're joking. It's boiling. And I got into bed and wrapped myself up in the duvet. And I was still shivering. Like, I had no idea why. 
And um, I didn't, you know, I, and my thoughts were running like a million miles an hour, like just really like macabre, really scary, really violent, really horrible thoughts. Yeah. And I was like, you know, I just felt really weird, like my brain wasn't my own. And anyway, I eventually got to sleep. And uh, the next day when I woke up, I felt completely fine um, for about five seconds. And then it all just came back straight away. Like, um, And that carried on. And then it was like basically all day, every day from getting up to going to bed, my mind was like a horror film. And... Um, and then it became like, you know, if a horror film is like, I don't know, O levels or whatever, then what I started thinking, I got into like PhD levels of horror, you know, I was like, I was doing like mathematical shit and just all sorts of intricate, hor horrific uh, concepts. And, and, um, and then it started to sort of rule me a little bit, like, I'd spend all my time arguing with my thoughts and and trying not to think thoughts that just made them more powerful. And before I knew where I was, I was like pretty much housebound and and having about fifteen panic attacks a day. Um, only being awake for about eight hours a day just because of exhaustion. I'd be asleep and. Um, and I lost a lot of weight. I mean, I'm six foot two, and I must have got around about 10 stone, which is like really skinny for yeah, a six yeah. I, I used to be about 10 stone when I was eight, and I'm six three. Yeah. yeah. It's not like, I, I, um, I have similar things myself. Um, I, I've never really kind of penned it down to PTSD, um, but I, I, when I'm not well, my brain goes like yours, like you described, like yeah. badly. Um, normally about myself, so it's like I, I totally get you. Just get lost in it, and that's all there is. And it's yeah. a fucking nightmare. So when, so was that before you doing the band or what? Yeah, or like yeah. When you kind yeah. of made it. So this is between sort of nineteen and twenty-two when it was really bad. Um, oh, I still, I still sort of saw a psychiatrist after that. I think I was sort of pretty much as as well as I'm ever going to be by about 25, 26. And then like now and again, like maybe once or twice a year, I sort of get an echo of it um, now, even, even, even today. But I know, I know where it is. And so it doesn't frighten me anymore. And I know I've just got to sit it out and just let it do what it does. And yeah. Um, but yeah, that was, um, I mean, that's the worst, the worst feeling in the world. Um, and nothing else touches it. Not, nothing in the real world, if you like, touches it, you know, like grief or, because you can't get a foothold with it because there's nothing tangible to fight against. Hello. <laughs> it's like, oh, oh, the only problem is my brain. And I can't yeah. it out and boot it against the wall. And my my uh, my psychiatrist used to say, 
quite a lot of people wish they had a broken arm or something because then at least you could see it and people would be able to sign your pot and um you know there's like there's something tangible in that whereas when you when you when you're mentally ill most people don't understand and and uh, and I think they get scared as well. Like, yeah, you feel I'm really gonna... isolated. I I thought when it happened to me that I was going to get locked up and that'd be it. I'd spend the rest of my life in a straight jacket in a dungeon. But you just, you just fucking released the album of a lifetime and he done all this and like and then PTSD <laughs> kicked in. <laughs> like, you, you, you just think like people never know what someone else is going through because like, at a time like, I'd, I'd be looking in the magazines going oh, I'm so jealous <laughs> I wish that was me but you just don't yeah. know what battle people are because that must have been really hard for you to then to go out and meet all the commitments and look like you're pleased that it's all happened well it, this was I mean so I had PTSD between 19 and 22 and the band didn't take off until I was 26. So I was sort of over the worst of it by then. Right, right. Um, but but it, what it did was it, it, it almost it felt like it opened me up a little bit. Yeah. Like the sort of the trial by fire of being mentally ill. Sort of burnt down or wore down. Um sort of the internal barrier that stops you from being creative sort of wore down my ego maybe um and yeah suddenly then i was able to just sing stuff and write stuff that felt real yeah. whereas before it had felt like you know my influences you know my favorite bands um when when we wrote retread which you mentioned that was the first time where I thought, yeah, that's Embrace. That's what we're about, you know. And um, and then from then, doing that again, it started to gather momentum. And uh, before we knew where we are, we had like a dozen, dozen of those, dozens, dozen biggies, dozen yeah, big songs. Fucking hits. <laughs> Oh, that's, so that that kind of, it does when you do have suffer from mental health problem, it does um, change the way you view the world. I, I tend to flip between um, bitter and angry that why am I like this? Why is everyone else happy? Um, to feeling like it gives me something, you know, it, like it gives me an insight into like emotions and feeling that other people sometimes just don't have yeah, yeah you, i think it gives you an empathy and it gives you an understanding and and uh, like i said before like a language yeah. so you and when you want to i mean i don't i don't always want to but you know if you want to you can really help someone and um you know i i, I quite often will meet people who've been suffering with one thing or another and I'm able to go into that mode where I can just listen and and, and be of use you know um, yeah. and that's that's good that's validating and and that it's weird like helping other people um, makes you feel good about yourself 
it's a weird one that I've never understood why that happens, but it seems to. <laughs> it's, it's almost like uh, um, you're being selfless, but it's selfish because it does. It makes you feel better. Like if yeah. you're feeling as wretched as you do, can then go out of your way to help someone else out. It means something. Also, I think thinking about other people's problems makes you realise you're not on your own, and and um, you know when you think you're the only person who's got problems, it that's validating as well. You know, yeah. what I always say though to people who are still suffering. So if you're still suffering, is you can keep going with the therapy until it stops. Like I was like an absolute fucking mess. But I didn't stop going to therapy until I was absolutely all right. I think a lot of people either don't don't see a good therapist because you know sometimes there's there's rubbish ones out there. Let's be honest, like they're just out, you know. Um, or they might be good for someone else, but not for you. You know, everyone's different. So sometimes the work of finding the right therapist. It's the last work you want to do when you need therapy. Yeah. It's like, oh, I don't want to trial and error. I need someone to sort me out. I'm at my wit's end, you know. Yeah. I don't want to go to a guy who's going to make me feel worse. Fucking hell. So it's understandable. but And it takes a lot of courage to go because, you know, it feels like it's going to get worse before it gets better. But actually, that's not what happens. And I went and um, it took a while. It took four years or so before I stopped going to therapy, but I was basically on the mend after about six months. And, uh, you know, and it started helping like straight away. I would say to anyone, particularly young people, um, to just fucking go as quick as you can. And, you know. Yeah. I also think quite often often when you're young, like what, you've got that's really upsetting you can be really violent but it can also be really shallow and easy to cure because it hasn't got roots yet you know so while it seems all dominating and your hormones are running around and you know you might feel awful and suicidal and, and like no one can help and really isolated and really awful um you know and those are all feelings i completely understand if you're young it can be really quickly sorted out because it hasn't yet built all the layers that it does. If you, if you, you know, if you're like fifty or sixty or seventy and you've had that, it's going to take a long time to unlock all that shit. Yeah, all kind of all those things then become part of your personality, and like yeah. if you're really young, then you you can avoid that kind of deep. Yeah, yeah, it's very true. It's, uh, it's, I often kind of say to people, sometimes it's just a matter of like, if you've actually kind of booked an appointment to go to your doctor, you're starting to do something and that yeah. you start yeah. feeling better. And doctors can be really shit, you know. Yeah, doctors, yeah. I've, I've been to see doctors who think that it's all fucking, you know, high in the sky psychology, you know. Mm. It's like ridiculous old fashioned doctor who thinks that if he can't give you a pill or whatever, then it's, 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 it's all in the mind, that depression, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, yeah, of course it is, you fucking idiot. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, sometimes you've got to fight through a little bit of that. But I think another piece of good advice that it's like, treat yourself like you would treat someone who you really care about. So like, you know, you, when you go to the doctor, 
and you're taking your best friend to the doctor or your mum or your brother or sister or whatever and you're trying to do right by them yeah. because you, quite often we don't treat ourselves with the same love and respect that we treat people who we care about and I think ultimately if you've if you are mentally ill you need to care about yourself you need to because you can, you can literally just take care of yourself, you know, make yourself a cup of tea and, you know. Yeah, have a bath. Weird little things, just letting yourself know that you care about yourself yeah. can really help, you know. Oh, it's totally true. I agree with that all day long. I always, I say it to people quite a lot. You know, like, it's all right, everything's going to shit. Do something nice for yourself. Doesn't have to be much, but yeah, you kind of have to look after yourself in life. Yeah. And we don't really think about it in those terms, do we, about looking after our mental health. When you've had a mental health problem, you know that you've got a kind of that you know, like you were saying, like sometimes you have a you have a moment and it kind of takes you back. And like um you've kind of got to be looking after yourself so you do keep on top of it. If you if you yeah. forget about it, it comes back. Like, yeah. it's, it's a job. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But the other thing as well is that you get into making excuses for yourself and 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 making excuses for being ill and allowing it back in. And I, I'm quite... I, I have quite a militant thoughts about that. I think that if someone doesn't feel well, you should you should get help. Like, I've, I know, and there's a couple of people who I know who have, you know, really suffering, you know, like with either OCD or, or whatever, and and it's like they've sort of accepted that that's who they are now because, you know, they've maybe been to dozens of shrinks and 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 it's never been useful, and and so they've sort of given up on that and accepted that they're better than they used to be. They're not right. They have off days, but this is just how it is, and. Um, and that you know, some people that's that's fine for them. But I would always argue that you got to keep going on the finding someone to help because I think you can get a lot nearer to completely eliminate it if you just keep going. Yeah, uh, squeezing the spot but not getting it all out and then leaving it and yeah. then it goes back. You know, <laughs> it's like, I, I I have certainly been that person in the past, and then one day I was like, I've just like I've got kids and I'm like I'm useless and then one day I was like I can't fucking do this anymore I can't handle it I cannot do it I'm gonna do whatever it takes and then yeah things really turned around after that really yeah. you know it's like when you go to therapy you can't go to therapy and say what well, fix me you have to go into therapy and say what do I need to do yeah yeah and it's kind of and people don't really like that but you know, that's the truth of it. You essentially yeah. do it for yourself in the end. Yeah, yeah. But I think having someone to help, yeah, especially yeah. if especially if your your illness is, is you fighting yourself. Because mm. when you're fighting yourself, you can't beat yourself at knots and crosses because you know what your next move is, you know. You can't beat yourself at an arm wrestle because you're using all your strength to stop yourself, you know what I mean? Yeah. All you need is just someone to help a little bit. It's only like a little finger in the right direction and suddenly you're using your strength and their little bit of help and and you get there and also they give you perspective you know you think you're surrounded by it and they can see it from a different angle and go it's just just behind you to the left there's a gap just go there 
Yeah. Well, well I know uh, when I kind of decided to do something about it, I jumped in. Like I have still have like three years into group psychotherapy. I, I was having um, uh, hypnotherapy. I was doing uh, uh, transcendental meditation. I was doing whatever I could. Yeah, I've, I've been. I've 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 tried. Yeah, initially I went to the doctor. My mum carried me to the doctors and. Um, then I went to see a clinical psychologist, and uh, but then, like, what happened after that is it then sort of morphed into issues with my heart, and then I sorted that out, and then it morphed into issues with my voice, which I've now sorted out for my singing, but it still affects my speaking voice a little bit. It's all this. That happened. Um, you went to the doctors because you was going insane. <laughs> and they went, oh, "All right, hold on, let's make it worse." <laughs> well, <laughs> no. The thing is, the thing is, is like I think quite often what can happen if you've got a mental illness is you think you've cured it, and it sort of morphs slightly. It's like 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 it like the coronavirus has morphed yeah. into another deadly, a different, more deadly strain. You know. Yeah, and then you get on top of that, and then it morphs again, and then you get on top of that, and you know, and so that's what that's what that's what happened to me, um, uh, uh, you know. And I'm on top of the voice from a singing point of view now. It still affects my speaking voice a little bit. Um, the heart thing has been bothering me a little bit more recently as well. The mental thing is fine. That was the worst. The, the mental one was worse. The, the mental one was like the daddy. It's really bad. madness in it. Like people have <laughs> no idea unless they've had it, but it's completely crippling. Um, yeah. Like yeah. you can't. It affects you physically, doesn't it, as well? Because like you're just exhausted from fighting this internal yeah. battle every minute, every waking moment. It takes you forever yeah. to get to sleep because you're having a battle. You don't want to wake up because you don't want to face the battle. <laughs> it's like. People just don't realise how it totally screws you right over. But I, yeah, I, used to, I used to have to like I used to play Tetris and I'd be like fixing the TV or um, like listening to talk radio um, while writing a song. I'd, I'd do like four or five different things because you can only really do one thing at once. I, I do. So if I had like four or five things to do then it was never going to be, like, thinking about the awful stuff. Yeah. So I just kept myself occupied. But the problem with that is, if you feel all right for a little bit, then when you have, when you when you plug back into the awful thoughts and stuff, it's a real drop. Yeah. Whereas when you feel shit already, there's no drop. So it's that sort of, there's that joy of contrast. It's like there's sort of the... The, the the kind of the horror of contrast is is there. I one that uh, a few years ago I I, I got <laughs> diagnosed again, and uh, they said I had dyphemia, which they call double depression, and it's basically I don't I think I've beaten it, but basically it's, you're depressed all the time, um, and then when other people, when normal people feel a bit sad, you have double depression. But you're never happy. You're always like miserable, really. Um, that describes the bulk of my life. <laughs> I'm kind of a lot better now. Yeah, um, you, you seem you seem good. Well, no, to be honest, Danny, I've 
like lockdown's kind of had me a bit lately, but um, I um, yeah, I put it on. Yeah. <laughs> like I've got you on my on my podcast. Yeah. Like that's yeah. a really good thing. So I'm happy. You know, I've been able been able to put it on is you know a strength in itself. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I say, so you, so you know the picture that I sent that I sent you. Yeah, that's amazing. That I've got that on my um in the in the pool what I call a pool room. Have you seen the castle? There's a film called The Castle. No, Eddie mentioned that. You need to check it out. Seriously. And anybody who's watching this podcast, Google it now, The Castle. And it's uh I think it's an Australian film, maybe New Zealand. It's it's I can't, the accent, it might be Australian. Um and it's absolutely like it's top ten film. And yeah. in it, this guy has got what he calls the pool room, which is where the pool table is. And it's where he puts all his trophies and all his like, you know, stuff that people have made him and you know, all that. And and so I've got I've got an office um where I do all my writing. And that is like my pool room where I have like, you know, and your portraits in there. Um yeah, it's incredible. My wife loves it as well. Oh really? Oh, yeah, that's lovely. Really good. That's that's what I do. Like every, every evening when I'm not doing this, I sit there and just draw, and it's almost like, um, yeah, I'm not thinking about stuff. You know, like yeah. when you write a song and like takes your brain off because you can only do one thing at once. Yeah, but I also do what you do. I'll be like doing that. I'll be on the socials. I'll be yeah, yeah, stuff, and I might be getting drunk as well. You know, like I'm doing lots <laughs> of things. Just enough to stave it off, yeah. Yeah, but uh, yeah, it's annoying. So, did you ever have you ever tried medication, anything like that? They- I was I was really frightened to take medication. My my attitude was that I remember when I was really young, I was about sort of four or five, and back in the day, we we didn't used to have like channels on the TV. You used to have like dial that you'd learn to tune in to like a radio almost. Yeah. And um, I remember I messed with the dial on the TV and the TV got bust. And uh, mum and dad came on, whatever. And like, you know, TV's not working. What's going on? What did you do? And I was just like, just turn that dial there. And it's like, well, then we must be turn that dial and make it better again then. <laughs> so we turn in the dial, it's not working. Get the TV man out and he has to take the back off to fix it. So it's like, I've done something that you do normally with a TV, but somehow now it requires an expert to go around the back and do some shit with diodes or yeah. and there's soldering gun and, you know. And, and, and it felt like that. Taking a tablet felt like that. I felt like... I've got this way through having thoughts. So surely the way to cure it is to just have different thoughts. I want to start messing with like, you know, putting something into my stomach and that's going to do, you know, whatever. So I just had a real, the, the, the psychologist said, you know, you can take tablets, it'll make it easier and whatnot. And I was like, I really don't want to, I don't know, you know, I don't want to be reliant on that. I want to better get better without that, you know. And he said, well, and psychiatrists have got a really good way of making what they want you to do seem really reasonable. <laughs> and he said, well, it's, the properties of it are no more 
you know, malignant or scary than alcohol. Um, it's much more specific than that. And you're fine to drink alcohol. It's kind of only really, it's just going to put you in a slightly different frame of mind. And I was like, no, it's still no. Fuck off. Final answer. Yeah. So I never did. I never took any drugs for it. So maybe I suffered more than I needed to. Um, yeah. You know, and I certainly aren't against the idea, you know, if that's, if that's what, because, you know, I, I know people who've got like clinical depression and, and stuff where, if they come off their medication, they're just literally almost on a different planet, you know. Yeah, it's, it's almost impossible to communicate, you know, and and yeah, and and they, and they need, you know, they need a family member to to take them to a hospital, um, you know. Um, so I'm I'm not anti-medication, you know. I think it's important for a lot of people, but for me, then uh, it was just something I just couldn't get my head around, literally. Yeah, I agree with what you say. I mean, like I'm, I've been like consistently taking medication for about fifteen years, and it does have its downsides. And what happens? You get strong to it, so you constantly, you know, every year you're changing again, and then that makes you really ill, or you come off of one. If I come off of one drug, I get like you said, like I'm, I'm not here, and then um, until the other one starts kicking in, but. Like what I do think you said was very true. There is that, yeah, it's in your mind. So in the like, I said, in the end, you've still got to face it. You've still got to <laughs> deal with. It. You've still got yeah. to do the work. The pills might make take the edge off. Yeah, but they don't solve the problem. The problem's yeah. in your head, and it's still there. Yeah, yeah. It's fucking yeah. I, I I was I just I was it was almost like I guess cowardice a little bit because I just I was a to to need a tablet was almost scarier than what I was going through. The idea that it was almost like knowing that there was a tablet there that would help. It was nice having it as a backup. Yeah. Like jumping out of a plane and knowing you've got a parachute, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, you're still free falling, but you know you've got a parachute, so it's not so bad. <laughs> Imagine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's still yeah, quite yeah. scary. <laughs> it's still quite scary jumping out of a plane. But it's a fucking lot scarier jumping out of a plane without a parachute. Do you yeah. know what I mean? At least it's some point if I fancy it. Uh, I was <laughs> so that was so what you did that for about four years then? Like it sounds yeah. like that would have been quite intensive. Yeah, it was horrific. Quite horrible. Yeah. I understand, like I said, I understand most things to do with that now. Like I I have a I have a language. A grounding in it mentally. Oh, yeah, yeah. oh, it's quite yeah. clear to me because we were saying <laughs> things. I'm like, fuck, yeah, 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 <laughs> got that. Yeah, it's quite, but it's something quite nice about it. It's one of the main reasons I love doing the podcast because I get to talk to people about mental health and, and often about their journeys as well. I've spoken to a few people who have, who have PTSD. Um, Leon was like the first responder, you know, when they're like there was like a terror attack on London Bridge a few a few years ago. Yeah. And he had PTSD from that because he was like the first copper on the scene. And then another guy I was talking to set up a charity. And it really, really opened my eyes to PTSD because as much as 
um, I can kind of empathise and like, I've had a lot of the kind of feelings, not to the extent that you get with PTSD. I don't think people realise like how fucking awful it is. And it doesn't actually have to be anything like, you, you know, you don't have to have seen dead bodies. It can yeah. be really, really... Yeah, I had a friend who got it um, from... They, they went to get into a lift on like the top floor and the lift wasn't there. And so the doors opened and they almost stepped into the lift shaft. But they didn't. They didn't. There was no, no harm done at all. Yeah. And then a couple of days later, they started having these really scary thoughts. And I was able to say, has anything happened to you? You know, because they spoke to me about it, came up to me and spoke to me about it. And I was like, has anything happened to you in the last sort of couple of days? And it's like, no, really, I can't think of anything. No, has anything odd or... You know, it doesn't have to be like a bomb going off or a fire or a war zone or whatever. Because 90% of people don't go through that, you know. We hear, obviously we hear about, you know, soldiers coming back from war or firemen or whatever get PTSD. But there's a lot of people out there who just live normal lives and get it. And and then she said, she said, "Um, actually, yeah, I was was on the top floor and this, you know, Coming, coming down and, and I went to get in the lift and the lift wasn't there. Oh my God, I nearly died. Yeah. And I was like, that's what it was. You know, that's... And, and then because she understood that there was a reason why she was feeling these weird thoughts and stuff, that gave her a foothold on it. Yeah. Like, I... I suffered for about three months before I went for any help. So I just thought I was going mad. Yeah. So I had no idea. And, and it wasn't until I saw a shrink, which was a whole nother three months later because of the fucking waiting lists. Yeah. Um, you know, so I've been suffering for six months when I eventually went to see him. And, uh, and yeah, you know, I got a shitload better after he, after he told me what it was and, you know, why, you know, and explained to me my thoughts. But then, you know, it took a while after that before I was fully better. But the sooner you get help, the quicker they can... Yeah, exactly. And I think the thing is, if you start feeling in a way that's completely alien, you know, like if it's completely different to what you normally feel, um, start kind of taking that inventory of yourself to think, is there something going on? That's amazing. So what that your friend had done is similar to what you've done, is the, the what ifs, the possibilities. Yeah. It just went, blah, too much. Yeah, yeah. And it's some really deep subconscious level. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, I had a whole bunch of things that had all gone on within about a week of that happening. So I was just really primed for something like that. Yeah. You know, like um, uh, my mate's brother had committed suicide. My grandma had died. I'd just prepared. My fiance just moved house. Um, I was ill. There's like a whole bunch of things all within a week or two. Yeah. And then that happening just must have been just a straw that brought the camels back, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's like your brain going, oh, you can't deal with this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Time out. Time out. Yeah, we can't look after this anymore. Going on, someone. It's totally right. It's just kind of, it is. Like, it's, it is. The answer, like 99% of the time, is going to ask for help. 
And yeah. like, if you don't get the help that seems to be helping, you just have to you go back and ask to see. I, I would I would say a hundred percent of the time go, because you know, let's say you don't need help. What's the what's what's the worst that's happened? You've 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 been and you've found out you don't need help. I, I mean, I I've never been. Maybe this is just me, but I've never been for help and had someone say you don't need help. Okay. Ever. Yeah, no. I don't think that happens. I mean, no. <laughs> you know, I, and, and I think anybody who thinks that they don't need help are probably the people who need help the most. Mm. I, you know, the amount of people who say to me, oh, I've never, I would never go see a shrink. I just think, yeah. Yeah, well, yeah well, you know. Why? Good luck with that. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, you, you've got fucking some awful repression going on. Like, but that's the thing, you have to take to kind of take responsibility for it. You know, like you were saying before, like you, you and I've come across some people who are like, well, no, this is just how it is. It's like, yeah, that's yeah, yeah and it doesn't have to be like that, accepting it. And it's like, but especially, like, I have this on my group psychotherapist, a couple of my older guys, and they're really giving in. And I and I'm like I'm fighting for every fucking minute, you know. Like I'm fighting to not give in and to try and make something and to do fun things and that. And they're like, it's not worth it, though, is it? It's like, well, nothing's <laughs> worth it. Nothing's really worth it. Yeah, it's still- just a ride. That's uh, the Bill Hicks thing. Is like it's all just a ride. So. Might as well be a fun ride as a fucking scary roller, you know, as a, as, a, as a ghost train, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So did you, like, we're both ambassadors for um, My Black Dog, something you haven't yeah. mentioned. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I'm really proud of that. I've, uh, like, I kind of made friends with Eddie, but I kind of, I'm in quite good contact with Nikki, who does it now, so yeah. They raised some money, didn't they? Nearly 30 grand. I was well impressed. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I want those lyrics. Get into them their retreats. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I just think it's really good when people come up and they're open and honest about it. Did you put something the other day about, like, Samaritans and calling the Samaritans? Like, yeah. Said, it, I've been in that position before when I've called the Samaritans. And yeah. as scary as it is... It's just so brilliant. Yeah. I I remember, like, um, it's a long time ago when I did it, but I'd already, like, bothered my mum and my dad and my brother so many times already. It was, like, three in the morning, and I just... I thought, I'm not going to wake people up again. Like, they've had enough. So I rang up, and um, first time I put the phone down I'm like I can't do it it's ridiculous I'm, you it's know big, isn't it? it's like I'm not as bad why is anybody going to want to listen to my fucking problems yeah. you know <laughs> and then and then I tried again and um, and it, the the weird thing because you expect like you, you, you're feeling like shit you ring them and you expect them to go hello Samaritans can I help you you know like it's going to be some sort of hotline or something but they don't it's like they, they pick up the phone, they go, hello, are you all right? And they just, and they sound worse than you. They sound more depressed than you. <laughs> you know what? You just brought it all back to me. One drunken night on my own when I used, have you ever been through periods where you're really self-destructive because it's just too much? And I, um, I, 
Yeah, or, maybe. I, 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 I sort of, I have self-destructive behaviour, but usually my self-destructive behaviour is when I, when I feel particularly good. So when I feel bad, I go into like the opposite of that. I go into sort of self-care behaviour. So, um, yeah, and, and like now, now I'm like nearly 50 and married and I've got a kid and stuff. The self-destructive behaviour is not part of my vocabulary anymore. I just, I just don't. I just, I've just grown up and not. I just won't allow myself to, because I've got to be all right for my wife and kid, you know. So yeah, I, I still have it. It's always, I still have it in the background, you know. Like yeah. uh, if I go out drinking, I will probably go ridiculous, and it's almost like it all just comes back. But I'm the same. I've got a wife and kids, so I'm like someone's got. To, I can pay the bills yeah. and I don't want them to yeah. see me being a mess and all that kind of thing. It yeah. does ground you. How did you, like, when I had kids, um, I found it a bit too much, you know? Like, um, like I was, rather than having that those moments when you're like, oh, the world makes sense now. I've got purpose. <laughs> you know, like, your mates seem to have, and like, they're like, oh, I cried yeah. when they were born. And I'm, like, when my kids were born, like, the first one nearly died and my wife nearly died and it was like oh my god and it was one of the most traumatic experiences of my life sounds it yeah oh yeah no i was i was basically there was blood everywhere they rushed her into for a cesarean and then 40 minutes later they came out and gave me my daughter they wouldn't answer any questions about whether my wife was alive or not uh and then they left me again for 40 minutes and then came oh my back God. and my wife was okay. And I remember like my mates were going, let's, you know, let's have a big drink to celebrate. And I'm like, I just want to, I want yeah. to stare at a wall. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 I can imagine. That sounds terrifying. But it's really, yeah. so I never had any of those kind of moments of clarity and that's all kind of come later with me when I'm like, oh, on. Yeah, I've got, like almost like railing against the responsibility in silly little ways. Yeah. Uh, uh, well, I mean, it is it is a lot of responsibility, oh. um, and also quite frightening the idea that if you're not around, you know, then they won't be around anymore because they need you. You know. It's sobering. If like you, <laughs> I mean, did you ever get suicidal? Did you ever did that ever kind of? Keep- I I um. I used to think about it, but I don't think I would have ever have gone through with it. My thing was that I thought I was going to hurt someone else. I thought, because my thoughts were so violent and so frightening, and they were constantly saying, you're going to murder, you're going to kill someone, you're going to, you know, all the worst things that you could imagine doing. My brain was trying to convince me that that's what I wanted to do. So sort of only sort of comfort I would get is knowing that before I did anything horrible to anyone else, I would take my own life. Mm. So if I had a knife and I was going to stab someone else, I'd stab myself first. But then, like, that wasn't any comfort because it also had a sort of spiritual element to it. And I thought, you know, when I die, I'm going to hell. So that's not, you know, ending this life is not, you know, it's just going to be worse on the other side, you know, so... So then that wasn't really any comfort, but it's sort of just having the dialogue about those three options kind of leveled it a little bit. 
because it was none of the three. It was it was all of the three. Yeah. Oh, Danny, you keep saying things that make me go, oh, yeah, I remember that. <laughs> <laughs> the, last, the, the last time I felt like that, you know, when like, I know when I'm really ill because, yeah, I want to kill everyone else. Yeah. Uh, and the last time I had that was I went to see Nick Cave uh, at Victoria Park in London. It was amazing. Nick Cave's songs are, like, most of them are about murder and love. And, uh, and there was... And on, on the train home, I was I drunk, like, you wouldn't believe. And on the train home, that was all that was going through my head. There was this guy trying to chat up a girl, and it was really sweet. It was lovely. You know, she liked it. He was being really gentlemanly. And all I wanted to do was, you know, kill him. Yeah, yeah. And then, well, that's like the, the, the contrast thing again, is that you see something really lovely, and it makes it, it, the ugliness inside you is more apparent. Aaron. Yeah. So I, I, you know, I would get it like, you know, you see like a puppy or a little girl or, you know, you'd be in church, you know, places that are supposed to be holy or are supposed to be sweet or are supposed to be nice. Yeah. Suddenly really brought out like this almost like devil inside you of like horrible thoughts and viciousness and, you know. Yeah, um, I yeah, yeah, I totally get that. So what's going, so what, I tell so yeah. What are you up to nowadays then? How do you, find, <laughs> what I always wanted to know, right? How do you, now, now you've got a kid, how do you, what happens if you got to go on tour or go to a yeah. for a long time? And um, does your missus get the right um? Do you feel constantly <laughs> guilty? Um, missuses get the right hump is just, I think, a universal thing for all guys. I think, I don't think that there's, I don't think there's any amount of being great that you can do that's ever going to be enough. Yeah, um, because because it's disproportionate. I mean, first of all, they carry the baby for nine months, yeah. and then it does untold damage to their bodies, and 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 then it's like then they have to breastfeed, and you know, so they've got all that stuff that they have to do that you can't do mm. already. So you're already in debt. Do you know what I mean? In terms of, you know, husband and wife. Yeah. You know, no matter how good you are at your job, how rich you are, how successful you are, if it's going to be an equal partnership, which you know, I mean, that's the only one of value, really. Yeah. You've got to just, you've got to just copy it off your wife because that's just how it goes. And I think I don't know a guy who doesn't just go, yes, whatever you want, dear. I mean, I do that. I'm really lucky. Like, me and my wife never really argue. She puts up so much with me because I'm, like, I, I flip flop in emotions and all sorts. But she, yeah, I'm lucky. We don't really fall out too much. But after, yeah. you know, like for me, the dream is always being in a band. And I, since doing the podcast, talking to people who are in bands, um, more often than not, it's kind of quite a sobering reality. It's like. Like there's points when it's yeah, being in a being in a band is not the answer. No, like if, if you if the question is how do I live a fulfilled and joyful and happy life? Yeah, the the answer is not being a band. It's like for me, like being in a band is sort of I can't imagine not. It's like it's just part of me, you know. It's just who I am, you know. And it's and it's really tough, and it takes a lot out of you, and um, it can be really soul destroying and really, you know, 
but then it equally, you know, some of the best moments in my life, I've reached real peaks and I had real sort of times and that have been amazing, you know. Um, so it's a real, it's a yin and yang thing, you know. It's yeah. amazing, but it's also horrible, you know. It can be, and it can be both things in the same day, you know. Um, the yeah. secret to happiness, I think, is just being grateful and yeah. and realising what you've got and, and being happy with, and finding peace with that. Um, because ultimately, like it's like you say, you know, in uh, two million years, we're all just going to be a thin layer of calcium around a rock spinning it. You exactly. Know? You have to think, like, <laughs> I, like, I think that is so true and that makes me feel better. I think that is quite a freeing thought. Yeah. You see it the other way. But we're I'm, in the middle of an explosion. Where, where we are at the moment, part of an explosion. Like, we're like, since the Big Bang, we're on a particularly a bit of rock that's hurtling through Earth, hurtling through space at something like 40,000 miles an hour from an explosion. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, well, basically, like, we're a bit of space shrapnel. <laughs> You know, we're on a bit of we we've grown, developed, and ha- and evolved on a bit of space shrapnel from an explosion. So we're in the middle of an explosion right now. We're we're literally, you know, like when there's on TV when there's like a, when they show a building blowing up and you know you see bits of debris falling around. We're on a bit of debris that's still going, and that's you know Thank fuck you. it man just enjoy it while it lasts yeah exactly and that's kind of <laughs> that, that's that's what that makes me think oh you've come up with loads of little gems in there danny you really have you've <laughs> loads of gems uh, this has gone amazingly well uh, really really look, we've, we've done our hour um but I'm, like yeah you've come up with loads of good gems i'm surprised we haven't spoken sooner <laughs> i say like if ever you Come and play London or something. I'd love to come up and like, yeah, yeah, say hello or something. Um, Definitely. Like, I've got your email. If I see you playing London, I'll shoot you an email. Like, yeah, I'll, yeah. Pay, I'll pay to get in and I'll come up and meet you or something. I'd love to do that. Yeah, have a couple of beers. Yeah, I'd really yeah. like to. It was a bit weird because you get to know someone. Because when you talk about mental health, you really get to know someone. Like, it's <laughs> kind of personal shit, isn't it? Yeah. And then you're like, ah, oh, it's a shame you didn't actually get. To meet in person that is about it mate right great I enjoyed that I really enjoyed it thank you so much that'll be helpful for your listeners and maybe you know some of my homespun wisdom there oh trenches (laughs) really good wisdom like I always think that's what it's all about sometimes it's about a sentence someone says a sentence and it presents it in a different way and you're like I could take that with me. I could do something yeah. And that's what I always think. I needed to say hello to uh, one of your big fans, uh, uh, Viviana. She, Viviana, I know Viviana. She's really yeah. lovely. And I talked to her quite yeah. a lot on the socials. And she, um, I did her a picture as well. Right. Oh, brilliant. So, uh, I, yeah, I need to mention her because she'll be well pleased. Um, yeah, she's cool. I've met her a few times at gigs and stuff. She's really yeah, cool. She, yeah, I kind of chat to her every so often. She's really good. Cool. I had this old, uh, uh, it was, yeah, it must have been from when you played in Essex, like when I 
when we talked about before, like an old kind of a little pamphlet that had like embraced like enemy things and that in it that was yeah. being handed out. And I took some pictures of it for her because I thought that's early, mate. That's early. Yeah, yeah. That's before the internet, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Well, thank you so much, Danny. It's so All right. I'd love to come and catch up with you and have a couple of beers. Oh, thanks, Danny. <laughs> You're a superstar. I've loved this. Thank All you. All right, so much. no problem. All right, mate. Take care. Take care. Right. Bye. Bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.